good to be uh, away and to have a, a change of scenery a little bit. I uh, was gone for a couple Sundays, which in a way kind of made it seem like it was longer than it actually was in a good way. We visited some family briefly, and then, then we made a tour through four of Canada's mountain national parks, Banff, Yoho, Kootenai, and Waterton. Now, Kootenai was the new one on the list for us. We'd never been to Kootenai National Park. It kind of gets to be one of those forgotten parks. It, it doesn't have, uh, you know, it doesn't make all the postcards the way Banff and Lake Louise do. It's kind of wilderness, uh, but it's beautiful. Uh, if you ever get the chance to drive the Highway 93 from Banff down to Radium Hot Springs, I'd encourage you to do it. Uh, maybe not on a long weekend because it gets a little crowded, but during the week there's not much traffic. Uh, there's beautiful views. You can drive 90 or 100 much of the way. Uh, you see some animals along the way and, and beautiful sights. So we spent most of the time in Kootenai because it was kind of the new one to us and we'd never been there before. One of the hikes we did was Flow Lake. It's kind of the big signature hike of the park. There's, I didn't take that picture. That's just one I found on somebody's blog or something or Parks Canada. Uh, but it's a beautiful, beautiful place when you get there. It's called Flow Lake, uh, not because it's named after somebody called Flow. It's because there's ice flows in it all summer because there's snow fields and glaciers and stuff. Uh, not at this end of the lake, at, at the other end of the lake that you can't see in this picture. There was ice floating all over the place. It is ice cold. Uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful place. And this mountain, this cliff that you can see at the other end, it's huge. You can't get it all in one picture. It rises almost straight vertical, about a thousand meters straight up from the shore of that lake. And it is razor sharp and pointy like an arrowhead. And that towering cliff at the end of the lake is the beginning of a range known as the Rock Wall, which extends, I think, 50-some kilometers. And you can do this huge backpacking tour all along the base of the Rock Wall, uh, which some of the people we encountered on the hike were doing. We're beginning a series in the book of Psalms, which will take us through July and August, and we'll focus our attention on one very important theme, that the Lord is our rock. And this is the sort of picture we should have in our minds, right? Majestic, awe-inspiring, strong, enduring, mighty. We're going to encounter all these kind of words as we look at what it means that the Lord is our rock. Now, I might have been away, but as I said, I was obviously not uh, unaware of some of the announcements that Mark made a couple weeks ago and all that's been going on. There's been a lot of uh, meetings happening to get us to the point of being able to make that announcement. I know that the journey toward unification of the congregations in our town is, is a huge answer to prayer for many of you. I, I also imagine, I'm sure this is the case, that there's going to be change. It's going to be a far different pattern than we've experienced for quite some time. And when things change, there's sometimes anxiety attached to that, especially when it seems like our community has really been in a season of change. Our, our wider, the college, the campus, our own church, there's been lots of new things happening, people leaving, people coming. It happens every summer, I think, but this summer seems like there's a certain intensity to that that maybe we haven't encountered for a while. And in a season like this, we, we, crave, we crave stability and we crave answers. I don't have all the answers. I can tell you that at our, at our meal today, there will be an opportunity for you to provide feedback around the tables as to how you're doing with all this and, and what are the main questions that you have, right? Because what happens, we, we've, I think we've tried to be really committed to transparency in this process, to letting you know in advance what's going on and to tell you with quick kind of feedback what's happening. But part of what happens in that scenario is 
When we keep you informed in early stage, we don't come to you with all the answers. In fact, we don't even know what some of the questions are. That's why we want to get some feedback from you to know what, what is urgent for you. What are the questions that you want to hear answers about? So I don't have all the answers. Um, our board is committed to working with the leadership team at the gathering, and we'll, we'll figure out what questions we need to ask, and we'll figure out what some of the answers are going to be for those. However, I do know a few things for certain in this, in this season, in this time of transition. We serve a God who is faithful, who is a rock in times of challenge. And we serve a Savior who Scripture tells us is the same yesterday and today and forever. And as the old saying goes, and as these psalms will affirm for us over these next weeks, if the Lord has brought us to this, he will bring us through this. Our first psalm is going to be Psalm number 18. And if you flip to that and you go, oh, oh this, is, this is long, fear not, we're not going to do the whole thing today. We're going to look at verses 1 to 30, and then we'll do part 2 next week. Both halves of this psalm have significant little passages within them that focus on the idea of the Lord being our rock. So I'd invite you to stand, as is our usual practice in reading our passage. Psalm 18. I'm reading from the ESV. I'm not sure what's behind us today. Changes from time to time. And uh, actually, I'm going to start with... It's not typically printed on these things. I'm going to read the superscription. If you look down at your, at your scriptures, you see there's a little bit of extra text before verse 1. I'm going to start there. We'll, we'll talk about that in the message. Psalm 18. To the choir master, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who addressed the words of this song to the Lord on the day when the Lord rescued him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me, and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, thick clouds, dark with water. Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire broke through his clouds. The Lord also thundered in the heavens, and the Most High uttered his voice. Hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen, and the foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. He sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. 
The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me and his statutes I did not put away from me. I was blameless before him and kept myself from my guilt. So the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. With the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you show yourself pure. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. For it is you who light my lamp. The Lord my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all who take refuge in him. This is God's word. You can have a seat. When we've looked at texts from the Psalms in the past, I have, I have pointed out, as I did today, that if there's one of those superscriptions that comes before verse 1 in our English Bibles, it's not a bad idea to pay attention to those. In the Hebrew text, typically those little superscriptions form the first verse of the psalm. And so they provide early commentary on, uh, on what the psalm is about, often the author and sometimes the occasion of the psalm's writing, or at least its use, perhaps, in Israel's worship. In this case, we read that David authored this for the choir master on the occasion of his being delivered from Saul and the rest of his enemies. Now, that seems like something important that we ought to pay attention to. However, it, it can be, if we don't dig a little deeper, it can be a little bit misleading, because the, here's why, not because scripture is intentionally misleading us, because if we're not careful, we might miss important things. And the mention of Saul in particular might lead us to think that the context for this is early in David's life, when he first became king, right? When the Lord uh, took down Saul and raised up David to be king over Israel. That makes a certain amount of sense. That's what we'd naturally think to. But if you flip over to 2 Samuel 22, you'll find there a version of this psalm, more or less the exact same, but look where it is in David's life. Psalm, or, sorry, 2 Samuel 22 is the end of David's life. In fact, the next chapter begins with the words, these are the last words of David. So elsewhere in Scripture, this psalm is placed in a context that comes right at the end of David's life story and all that David has done. It's pure speculation here, but I wonder if, despite its kind of nondescript location in the book of Psalms, 18 isn't a real significant number or anything, but I wonder if this might have been sort of a magnum opus or a life's work for David, something that he worked on and worked on and refined and edited throughout his life as the Lord proved faithful time and time again. Uh, thinking back, you know, on, on his hardships, his failures, and yet still through it all there runs this thread of the goodness of God in his life. And, you know, I can kind of imagine that this aged King David finally hearing this psalm performed publicly in worship by the choir master, whoever was in charge of leading the worship of Israel at that time, and aged King David maybe tearing up and weeping on how the Lord delivered him. It's all conjecture, of course. I really do believe that there's something significant for us here in the fact that elsewhere, Scripture places this psalm at the end of David's life, and we'll unpack that a little bit more as we go. So looking, first of all, at verses 1 to 3. This kind of forms David's thesis, if you like an academic term. 
begins a theme that will run throughout the rest of this work. There are three parts. First of all, David affirms his love for the Lord, who is strong. Then he provides several images of God's strength and compares the Lord to different things. Then he states the pattern of his life up until this point. He calls out to the Lord, the Lord delivers him. Now the statement, I love you, O Lord, my strength, it seems kind of just like a statement of fact, similar to what we get in many of Paul's letters, right? Where if we're not careful, we can be, oh yeah, this is just how you start a thing like this. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I love you, Lord. I thank you, Lord. But there's profound truths contained in this. The Lord is not an abstract concept for David. It's a little bit unfortunate that our our general pattern of translations into English work a little bit against us here. It's everywhere in the Bible that you see Lord in those all capital letters or, or all small capital letters kind of thing going on. That's a translation of the divine name of God that was revealed to Moses at the burning bush, right? You remember that? I am that which I am. It's the divine name of God. Now, we could go into the translation history, but basically it boils down to a lot of the, the Jewish people throughout the history of Israel, in their effort not to take the name of their Lord in, their God in vain, uh, they, they didn't like to pronounce the divine name of God, and so they would just put Lord. They would say Lord, and eventually it began to make its way into translations, and that's what we have today. Lord, of course, is a title, the Lord, uh, but the divine name of God is a name. David begins by proclaiming, I love you, not I, I respect you or I honor you. Those are appropriate and might even seem more natural given some of the content that's going to follow in the rest of this psalm. But he begins with an affirmation of love for God. As I said, this points to the foundational truth that the Lord is not some abstract concept for David. The Lord is not a what, but a someone for David. Not, and not just someone he knew of, but somebody he knew and knew well and had walked with these many years. Then David provides a whole bunch of overlapping and complementary images of the kind of strength that belongs to the Lord in which he then extends to his people. Our rock, our fortress, our deliverer, our God, our rock again, specifically our rock of refuge, our shield, our horn of salvation, our stronghold. These are all images of strength, stability, and protection. Many of these are, are pretty, pretty straightforward images, right? Like what I was talking to the kids about, a rock, a refuge, a stronghold. We kind of get that. The one that might be a little uh, unique here is our horn of our salvation. Actually, the horn was a, a pretty common image in biblical times for strength. In many of our translations, we read of this image of horn paired with uh, the hor- like the horn of a wild ox. Are you familiar with that? In the Psalms and other places, there's this image. Uh, many scholars, both biblical and biological, believe that this, uh, this wild ox refers to an animal that was once common in Europe and the northern Middle East called the oryx. It's extinct now, but it was a big animal like a bison, or what we might call a buffalo here. But it had great big horns, kind of like a Texas longhorn cap, kind of like what they have in Africa and Asia that they call a water buffalo, a bigger animal than, than what we would typically encounter as modern cattle. And I'm sure we've all seen pictures of, of horned animals, whether that's bulls or elk or bighorn rams. 
right? They're, they use their horns for protection and fighting. Uh, it's an image of strength. Another interesting side note here is that ancient people, and Israel certainly did this as well, they would use the horns of animals that grew from their heads and they would make, well, well horns, right? Trumpets out of the horns of these mighty animals. And they would use these trumpets for religious festivals and they would use them to summon people to battle, sort of building on the idea of this horn as an image of strength and then using that in their worship and in their warfare as well. That's kind of where we go here, right? Uh, The Lord... David calls to the Lord, and the Lord shows up in his might and fights the battle on David's behalf. It's kind of his thesis, really. He he says, he calls upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and he was saved from his enemies. Actually, though, most of our translations have this in the present tense, don't they? They don't say, I called upon the Lord, and he delivered. Many of them, and if you know that that song uh, about, I will call upon the Lord... It's in the present tense, right, in our Bibles? I call, I am saved. And that's faithful to the Hebrew, as much as Hebrew and English work together, which isn't always straightforward. But that's significant. Of course, at the end of his life, David probably is primarily looking back to things that happened in the past. When past tense, God did deliver him, when he called to God. Thinking of Goliath, thinking of Saul, thinking even of his own son Absalom and the the rebellion that he led. All these times in the past that God did deliver him when he called out. But by putting it in the present the way he does, I think what that does is is it, it takes it from just being isolated incidents and it describes a pattern of life that David has experienced his whole life long. It wasn't something that just happened one time. This was David's life walking with the Lord. So after he's made these general statements of what the psalm's going to be about, he provides a a bit of a description for some of the things that he faced when he was in desperate need of the Lord's deliverance. They're, They're quite tightly related here. We have the cords of death, the torrents of destruction, the cords of Sheol, and the snares of death. All just slightly different images, but the picture is all the same, right? There's something that's grabbing a hold of David, that's, that's wrapping around him and threatening to take him down. And the water imagery of the torrents of destruction that's, will be significant as we go on. Psalms and the wider ancient Hebrew culture often saw water as a dangerous thing, as a threatening thing, as chaos breaking out. That's frequently used throughout the Old Testament. In other words, though, David was facing many times throughout his life the very real possibility of death. And if you read his life story, this wasn't just one time. This was many times when he was in mortal danger from his enemies. And verse 6 Similar to verse 3, David recounts his prayer and the Lord's response. In distress, out of desperation, knowing that deliverance in his situation was beyond human means, his own or anyone else's, he cries out to the Lord for deliverance, and the Lord heard him. Isn't it reassuring to know that the Lord hears us? Doesn't it do us good to know that when we call out to the Lord, we're going to be heard by someone who can actually do something about it? How many times have you needed to call customer service or warranty about something 
and how hard is it to get through to somebody that actually knows what's going on and can help you and you get put on hold or they shuffle you around well I'm going to transfer you to this guy and you get to talk to that guy and he says well why did they transfer you to me and they transfer you back to the first person you were trying you get that you don't get that with God you can go directly before the throne of God and talk to somebody who can actually do something about it who is mighty to intervene in your situation And we can trust that he will hear us. Now verses 7 to 15, look at the response. It's obvious here that David is speaking in some pretty pretty big, poetic, kind of epic terms. We We don't have any examples in David's life when something like this happened on this sort of a scale. Seems a little bit maybe reminiscent of Moses at the Red Sea and then later on in Israel's history, what happens with Elijah perhaps. But the images, don't they? They give us an incredible picture of God's power and majesty and maybe a bit of a glimpse into what was going on, spiritually speaking, in the occasions when the Lord did deliver David. So the image shifts from the Lord as a solid rock and a foundation to this mighty storm that's brewing. Right, we, get, we got storm clouds and wind and, and lightning and thunder and hail and like fire mixed with hail. Many of us will have experienced powerful storms. We've even had, while I was away, there were some warnings and whatnot, I understand. And there's something about the sky going black out in the west and the, that chill wind picking up and you see the lightning crackling and the thunderheads coming up and you go, well, maybe we better batten down the hatches and get the kids inside. And this, it, it can get scary. Uh, sometimes we even have warnings that there's tornadoes possible or large hail. And then, then it comes, right? It hits. That sudden deluge of water and the lightning, that can be scary, right? And, and watching that roll in or being caught out in it, it gives you a sense of your own, your own smallness in the grand scheme of things before your creator. But to put a finer point on this storm imagery, God isn't compared to the storm specifically. The storm becomes God's vehicle for showing up, right? This is like his war chariot that he shows up in, like riding on these mighty spiritual creatures, the cherubim, if you will, with this massive storm billowing out behind him and the lightning and the hail going on before him. It's his vehicle for arriving in deliverance. He's, he's way mightier even than that storm is because it's under his control. And that's kind of a terrifying thing. It's even a destructive thing. Look what happens when he shows up. It's, it's like God is so intent on saving his chosen one, he's willing to take creation apart in order to do it, right? We see the, the channels of the sea being laid bare and even the foundations of the very world itself. That's a mighty thing. And so while we must hold on to that foundational truth at the beginning, I love you, O Lord, The Lord is someone we can love, someone we can know, someone we can be acquainted with. He's also mighty. He's powerful beyond our wildest imagining. He is not to be trifled with. I don't think we'll ever do much better than than C.S. Lewis's memorable description of Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia. He's not tame, but he is good. So we get that big, epic description. And then we switch in 16 to 19... Still some imagery, but it's less dramatic in fashion. How the Lord's mighty deliverance affected him. 
First, he describes the Lord as pulling him up out of deep water. Again, water imagery in Hebrew culture had to do with chaos and destruction. The Lord's pulling him up out of that. Second, he describes it more literally as the Lord delivering him from enemies that were too strong for him. Again, a frequent feature of David's life. And third, he describes it again in kind of poetic imagery of being pulled up out of the deep water and then put in a wide place. Remember how all the images of destruction in the earlier uh, verses had to do with like the cords of death wrapping him up and he's, he's ensnared and entangled and it's squeezing him and pulling him down. And now he's experiencing the opposite of that. He's free. He has room. He's in a wide place where he can walk in obedience to God, free from all of those things. Now in verse 20 in what falls, we have, we have some of the more challenging, I would say, aspects of this psalm, at least if we want to understand it from a Christian perspective. David states that God's deliverance was a reward for his own righteousness. But doesn't this kind of go against what the New Testament teaches, that uh, the Lord's relationship toward us is pure grace, not based on any righteousness we have? Doesn't this kind of get dangerously close to what some of those prosperity guys teach, that if you're faithful, then the Lord will deliver you, if you're just kind of good enough and get your act together? We need to unpack a few things here. We, can, we kind of would be good if we could do it all at once, but we can't. We have to only unpack one thing at a time. So let's tackle the New Testament issue briefly to start with. St. Paul never did say that obedience was optional as far as this whole God, God reaching out to you in grace goes. Particularly after you become a child of God, he was pretty clear. Shall we sin that grace would abound? By no means. Paul's not anti-obedience or or anti-following the way the Lord teaches us to live. That's that's a serious misreading of Paul and Jesus and the Bible as a whole. To believe that it it doesn't matter how you live if you want to just continue on living in intentional or unrepentant sin, that it won't affect your spiritual state or your walk with God or your prayer life or seeing his blessing in your life. The second thing to look at is this. In what sense does David say that he's righteous or blameless or has clean hands? Well, certainly not in an absolute one. This is the same David, remember? Go back and read 2 Samuel. This is the same David who committed adultery by taking and stealing another man's wife. And then to hide that, then he decided to kill the guy or conspired to have him killed. Amongst many of the other things that David did, and the, the epic disaster that became his own family as a result of, of some of these failures. He's not saying that he's never sinned. He, he can't say that or he'd be lying. He's not saying that he's righteous or blameless in the sense of perfection and that he's sinless. That, that should be pretty obvious. So what is he saying? What can we take from this? Well, let's look at the last section. I want us to focus on verse 27. I think this may be the key in understanding a lot of what we've just read about David's experience. Verse 27, it says that God saves the humble, but he destroys the prideful. Now, at first glance, David's statements about his own righteousness might seem to be prideful. Like David's saying, I'm, I'm so good and I've got it all together and look at me. But as we look at this, it's kind of actually the opposite. You know, I've sometimes thought about the differences between David and Saul. Saul was rejected 
by the Lord. And if you read some of those passages in 1 Samuel, it can kind of seem like Saul got a bit of a raw deal. Like, yeah, he did some wrong stuff. He offered a sacrifice when he shouldn't have, and he kind of fudged a little on really wiping out the Amalekites and a few other things. But it, it's, it can seem from our point like Saul didn't really do anything that bad that should justify the Lord being like, I am done with this guy. And then you look at David, and it's like, he, he committed adultery, possibly rape in there, murder. His own family was a disaster because he didn't lead and, and guide his sons appropriately. And yet he's called a man after God's own heart. And we go like, what? How does this compute? The attitude, the difference, is in the attitude, I would say. And, and thus, that creates the difference in outcomes. It isn't so much about the severity of the sin. It's about the attitude that they had afterward. Both Saul and David were confronted by their sins, or about their sins, by a prophet of God. And when Samuel came to confront Saul, what happened? Saul tried to rationalize. Saul, he, he tried to be like, well, you know, I did it for this reason and blah, blah, blah. And finally, he'd get around to repenting, but only after a lot of wheel spinning. What happens when, when David gets confronted about his sin by Nathan? Nathan tells him that parable about the sheep and the, the greedy neighbor. And David's like, that's terrible. That man deserves to die. And then remember the famous response? Nathan, you can just imagine like looking him in the eye. You are that man, David. And what's David's response? He doesn't say anything except, I have sinned before the Lord. And he's, a, he's, he's fully prepared, it seems, that the Lord might put him to death for it. But he repented. David was not blameless in an absolute sense. However, even in his sin, he never abandoned faith in God. He was quick to humble himself and repent of what he did wrongs, terrible though it was. That's where true righteousness and true blamelessness comes from. Not in trying to downplay your sin, direct attention from it, rationalize it away, but in being honest and humble about it and seeking forgiveness from the Lord and accepting the forgiveness that is there on offer and the cleansing that the Lord provides. David's issue in this psalm and throughout his life always seemed to be literal enemies. The Philistines, Goliath, Saul, even his own son Absalom. Most of us don't live in such a, such a dangerous and, and violent manner. However, that doesn't mean that we're free from powerful enemies that would harm us even kill us. Some of us might feel that, that health difficulties are those strong ropes that entangle us and threaten to drag us down. The experts tell us that for most people, if you just mention the word cancer, it causes a perceptible increase in stress. They've done experiments, right, where they measure heart rate and blood pressure and skin conductivity and sweating and all that. And, and for many people, just the mention of cancer causes their stress to increase because they're afraid of getting it, because they know people that have it, maybe that have died from it, right? And, and that's, that's a thing that we do face in our world that some of us may be facing now. I, I, for some, it's not just the mention of it, is it? it? It could be an actual diagnosis. Some here will feel like grief or loss are those snares that are wrapping you up 
There's nothing pleasant or good about losing someone that you love. And those ropes can wrap tight and tie on with knots that take a long time to get free from. Some of us are struggling with uncertainty about the future or with change, starting a family, family leaving home, maybe making decisions that grieve you some, declining health and strength, uncertainty about what's next in life or what you're called to do, uncertainty at work, uncertainty about this church unification thing, any number of things. Can I just encourage you that the Lord is still the same powerful God that David knew. He's still a rock, he's still a refuge, he's still mighty, he's still strong for his people. I think the most troubling thing is that we don't always understand how he operates. Why does he sometimes show up in these, these powerful and what we can only describe as miraculous ways, and healing and delivering and justice and righting wrongs, and other times he seems strangely absent? I don't have the easy answers here, nor is any scholar or preacher, at least not an honest one, throughout the church's history. But what I do know is that if we follow the line from David forward about a thousand years, we come to one day on the outskirts of Jerusalem and we meet the one man in history who could say in an absolute and complete and total sense that he was blameless and he was righteous and he had kept the commands of God perfectly. And he was not delivered. Those cords of death that David mentions in this psalm that almost dragged him down, they dragged the Lord Jesus all the way down. That darkness that David pictures in this psalm of God's wrath and judgment, it came down that day on him. Jesus was the only man who could say the verses in the middle portion of our text today honestly and completely, that he was perfect and had lived blameless in all the ways of the Lord, in a straightforward, absolute, uncomplicated sense. And yet he was not delivered. And yet he was. God raised him up. And scripture tells us that the same spirit and the same power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in us. If David could state with certainty, with the limited revelation that he had at his point, that the Lord was his rock and that the Lord would come through for him in powerful ways, how much more can we, knowing what we know at this point in history, on this side of Jesus' incarnation, his death, and his resurrection? And we might not see outward displays of the visible power of God, like David describes in this psalm. Probably David didn't even see all that he's describing. Even in his own case, that seems to be poetic language of perhaps what was going on in a spiritual sense, maybe not a literal one. We might not see anything even outward in terms of change of circumstance or reversal of the issues facing us. However, we have confidence, and we can have confidence, that in Jesus' death and his resurrection and in his eventual renewal of all things that our most serious problems, right? Enemies, health concerns, uh, financial things, all those things, those are problems, but they're not our most serious problems. Our most serious problems are our sin and the alienation from God that it causes. And we can have confidence that in what Jesus has done, those most serious problems 
have been dealt with decisively and once and for all. That's the promise. That's a trustworthy and true statement. That's solid. That's something that we can stand on and not have it crumple underneath of us. As we move toward partaking in in communion to close this, this portion of our time together, let's remember that. As we, as we eat and drink, we're not just remembering something that happened a long time ago, though we are doing that, right? Remember how I talked about David was talking about things that happened a long time ago in his life, but he was talking about them in a present tense kind of a way, remembering them, but also proclaiming them? That's what we do when we gather and we partake in the Lord's Supper. We're reminding ourselves and of one another that we serve a powerful God whose word is certain. We're reminding one another that the worst of our problems have been dealt with in the work of Jesus. We're reminding one another that the same spirit that raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the dead now dwells in us and among us. And we're proclaiming that there is, despite what we see in this present and broken world, that there is an ultimate and complete and final deliverance coming because we're proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes again and when he will renew all things in his mighty power. So let's pray. And uh, maybe we need to talk to the Lord a little bit before we go to the table. And uh, once we've spent a little time talking to him, we'll uh, invite our worship team and our communion servers to come forward. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you uh, that you love us so deeply. We thank you that like David, even though we are not perfect, not blameless, not sinless, yet because of what our Lord and our Savior did for us, we can stand before you washed clean, with clean hands, with a pure heart, uh, with guilt removed, and uh, stand before you as, as your children. We thank you that you are a rock of refuge for us, that you are sure and dependable, um, that you are the same God that we read about in in David's time, in the time of Jesus and the apostles, and that you've remained the same God as you've been building your church these 2,000 years. We thank you that you are our rock that we can stand on, and that we can take refuge in, knowing that no storm will wash you away and no weight will crush you underneath of us. That is a great promise, Lord. And as we uh, partake of the meal that you left for us uh, to partake in, may we be reminded of these things. May that uh, truth dwell in our hearts anew, and may we proclaim these truths to one another. In the mighty and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Come forward.